Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning for the goodness of your grace and for the power of Jesus Christ that is revealed to us and through us in your Holy Spirit's work as he exalts Christ in us and around us and to us. Your word says that in obedience and in trust in you, you act. And so pray for obedience to your word. Pray for trusting you so that you would act phenomenally here this morning. Let your words speak in Jesus' name. Amen. So, mysticism. Mysticism is Paul's concern today in verses 18 through 19. Now, mysticism sounds like kind of this far out, weird and wacky practice, probably, right? Probably not something that we're in touch with. Mystical things and mysticism is kind of for a world of people that we're just not really in tune with because we're Christians. We don't do mystical. There's miraculous things in Christianity, but not mystical. And plus, isn't mysticism a little bit more kind of like, you know, ancient beliefs, like a little wackier and crazier than what we now with our intelligence today believe and understand. I think to some degree that's true, but I think also that mysticism is far more prevalent in our world than you may think, and it is way closer to you than you may think. Mysticism, which was a, a concept uh, of heretical beliefs that the mystics were teaching in Colossae. So Paul's writing to the Colossians and telling them how to respond and how to think and how to feel about the mystics who are teaching them lies and deception in a false gospel. So what is mysticism? It's ultimately about this like deeper or higher, however you want to kind of describe it, either deeper spiritually or a higher ascent to spirituality. It's, a, that, it's, it's an experience. Mysticism is all about experience. Mysticism works from the inside out. The idea is that there's something within you that can be drawn out that is better than what you are now. And the reality is, biblically speaking, that's a lie. Because if we, the deeper we dig into ourselves, the more we find Jeremiah 17, 9 to be true. That our heart is wicked and deceitful. Wicked above all things. That's the condition of our heart. That's what's in the depth of who we are. The deeper we dig into ourselves, the more we find our sinful nature. Not goodness, not holiness, not righteousness. Not kindness, not love, not grace, not peace, not joy, but hatred, evil, sin, wickedness, murder. That's what's in the depth. The deeper you go into this heart, that's without Christ. The deeper you go into this heart without Christ, that's what you find. So mysticism seeks for truth from within. And it does so by producing like your own truths based on your feelings or your individual intuition or your experiences. And mysticism doesn't consider 
external data, information, or evidence, or intellect. It rejects authority from outside ourselves and promotes authority from within. And it depends on self-actualization for truth. You have to produce in yourself, you have to actualize or bring to reality this better version of yourself and it has to come from within. That's mysticism. And if that's the case, then what happens is truth becomes whatever you decide truth is. Truth to you is whatever you believe truth to be. It's subjective because you could say, this is my truth, and I could say, well, this is my truth, and someone else could say, well, this is my truth, and they're all different. Or they may even oppose each other. So this is a common argument in Christianity with agnostics or maybe atheists um, that truth can be whatever you want. Everyone should live their own truth. Truth can be whatever you want to be. And the, the rebuttal from the believer is, well, what if my truth says that your truth is wrong and you just gave me permission for my truth to be right? So my truth is right because you just gave me permission for it to be right and my truth says your truth is wrong so your truth is wrong which means you can't have truths being obscure or subjective. They have to be objective and absolute. And that's why mysticism doesn't work because everyone conjures up from within their own beliefs, their own ideas, their own reality really. Scripture, scripture is not Subjective, it is objective. Scripture is words, words that God intentionally wrote. Those words have meaning, and those meanings and words have authority to declare what is true and what is not true, what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. Mysticism is irrational and anti-intellectual, and because it's irrational and anti-intellectual, it makes it an enemy to the gospel. And an enemy to God and an enemy to the word of God because Christianity is highly intellectual and perfectly rational and completely logical. That doesn't remove the other realities of being a Christian, which is the emotion and the intuition and the discernment and the feelings and the experiences. It doesn't remove that, but those things have to be the product of the intellect. Truth is objective. It is clear and precise and communicated to us perfectly by God in Scripture. Whereas mysticism is so wrapped up in like the wavering emotions of humanity and the irrational conclusions of faulty thinking that it can never really reproduce itself because there's no structure or foundation or objective truth on which it stands because it's subjective. Biblical Christianity is to experience God in the way that God commands us to experience him. Like, we gotta think about that. I'm gonna say it again, I want this to sink in. Biblical Christianity, or following Jesus, we could call it following Jesus, is to experience God in the way that God commands us to experience him. And that endeavor requires thinking. It requires study. It requires reading. It requires intellect. The word mystical is an adjective. It means spirituality that is not apparent to the senses or the most common 
definition of mystical is beyond ordinary understanding, which is the antithesis of the gospel. The gospel is not beyond ordinary understanding. The gospel is simple. Children can understand it. It's not complex. Someone had to die for your sins or you go to hell. Jesus sacrificed himself and substituted himself for you. Believe it. Gospel. That's it. That's not, that's not deep. I mean, emotionally, it's deep. Experientially, it's deep. To the unsaved person who hears this gospel message for the first time, it feels deep because it's so enormously real and powerful. But intellectually, that's not a hard concept at all. Biblical Christianity requires intellect. It requires evidence. It requires comprehension of external things like Scripture. Christianity is not a feelings-based belief. It is a thought-based belief. So thinking drives Christianity, which is why we're commanded throughout Scripture to have the mind of Christ, so that we have right, Christ-like, biblical thinking. Not feelings, not experience, not self. Those things don't drive Christianity. Thinking drives Christianity. When right thinking drives Christianity, the product is right feelings, right experiences, and right views of self. Because we don't remove feelings. We don't remove experiences. We don't remove self from Christianity. That would be asceticism, which Paul's going to get to in a second. Instead, feelings are significantly important to your Christianity. Experience is significantly important to your Christianity. Self is significantly important to, to your Christianity. Without yourself, there's nothing to be saved. So, of course, you're important to the gospel. There needs to be an object that gets saved. So we don't remove or reject those things. We just don't prioritize them as being the driving force of what we believe. What we believe is determined by the word of God. And in order to understand it, we use our minds, our intellect, our brains, our thought processes, our, our rationale to comprehend the truth. And as we comprehend the truth mentally, the Holy Spirit transfers that into emotion and into experience and into practical and pragmatic ways to live out those truths that we comprehend. Which is why I say things like theology that is all up here in your head, theology that is not practiced is terrible theology. You could be the most brilliant theologian of all time and know all the theological words and know their definitions and apply them perfect or you know apply them to doctrines perfectly and and and, and have every bible verse for every doctrine and explain it all perfectly and millions of people come to listen to your great theological brain as you spew out these incredible doctrines and information oh that guy's so brilliant and smart and writes tons of books but doesn't live it he's a terrible theologian because what does the Bible, what is part of theology? One of the theological ideas in the Bible is what? Obedience. One of the theological ideas in the Bible is living the things that you believe 
practicing Christ-likeness. So to have a theology about all these doctrines in the Bible and then to not live them at all is bad theology because you're missing the most important part of theology, the practice. So Christianity is practice-driven, or it is, it is practice-reliant, it is feeling-reliant, it is experience-reliant, but all of those things have to be first motivated by your thoughts, by your comprehension, by your intellect, by what you think and what you believe. And then when the thinking is right, the feelings get right, the experiences get right, and the view of yourself gets right. Right thinking produces right living. So these mystic teachers were telling the Colossians that they were not close to God because they were too dependent on intellect and evidence and absolute truth, which is exactly what we as Christians are dependent on. We're dependent on intellect. We're dependent on evidence. Why do you believe Jesus rose from the grave? If you say, I just believe and I believe because of faith, that's why I know. That's not a sufficient answer. It, it, it is a sufficient answer, ultimately, biblically speaking, it really is sufficient. The only reason you do believe in the resurrection of Jesus is because of faith. But there is an intellectual side of that belief. Can you defend the resurrection? Can you defend the, the validity of the Bible? Can you defend the life of Jesus Christ? Can you defend the reality that Jesus is God and man? Can you defend your beliefs? Do you have an intellectual understanding? Or do you just believe because you believe? And I'm not going to tell you if you believe just because you believe and you don't have the intellect to abandon that belief... I would tell you to dive into the intellect and understand it more. It will strengthen your faith. So intellect and emotions and experiences and feelings should never be battling with each other. And in our world, they do. In the theological schools and the, among the preachers and pastors and doctors of theology and whatever, there's oftentimes just a disconnect between, between knowledge and experience. Knowledge and feelings, those should never be separated. Because right thinking is going to produce right feelings. Now this dependence that the Colossians had on the gospel, which required intellect and evidence and absolute truth, was told to them by these, they were told by these mystics that they were not close to God. That they were not experiencing God the way they needed to. And it clearly bothered the Colossians because Paul encourages them and reminds them of this. So we know that the Colossians are bothered by the mystics because Paul says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. So Paul's telling them, don't, don't believe the mystics who are telling you that you need something more than the truth of God's word. They are skewing your thinking. Instead, the church is meant to stick to, Titus 2.1, sound doctrine, which Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.7 comes from a sound doctrine mind. This, this idea of soundness is all over the New Testament. Sound mind, sound thinking, standing on a firm foundation, having knowledge, awareness, understanding. The entire book of Proverbs is about what? Feelings? No. Understanding. And the New Testament is filled with commands to understand, to know God, the knowledge of God, the intellect that is required to be a follower of Jesus. 
So this idea of soundness is all over the New Testament. Sound doctrine comes from a sound mind. A sound mind comes from the word of God. Having the mind of Christ. We gain the mind of Christ by knowing the, the mind of Christ. And this Bible is the mind of Christ. The way in which the mystics sought to disqualify the believers in Colossae is revealed in verse 18. Paul says that this is what they were doing. Insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason. You see that? Without reason. There's the absence of the intellect. And what does the absence of the intellect create? Puffed up. That's arrogance. The absence of intellect creates arrogance and it all comes from their sensuous minds. There's no foundation. There's no absolutes on which they can stand. And so with sensuous minds, meaning wild and passionate minds that run amok to whatever they desire, whatever their hearts and really their sinful nature desires to pursue, they, they, without reason, without sound minds, they create unsound doctrines and it creates this arrogance and then they go on about visions. Oh, my spiritual experience was beyond your comprehension. Oh, you haven't had this experience yet? You haven't walked with an angel on the top of a mountain? You're not saved. Now, asceticism, which Paul mentions here, is basically self-abasement, like total refusal of anything good. Refusal of joy and happiness and experiences and possessions. It's just, it's like spiritual self-mutilation. And it's a false belief that thinks that joy and pleasure and physical things are evil. Because true religion, so this is the ascetic view, true religion is humility. True humility is to have nothing because you deserve nothing good. That's the, that's the ascetic mindset. You are evil because you're physical, so you deserve nothing good because that's humility. And because you deserve nothing good, you should have nothing good and be as destroyed and as broken and as humbled as possible and live this life with no pleasures and no good and no food and no possessions and no happiness and no joy because you don't deserve it. So you better be what you don't deserve in the presence of God. That's asceticism. Now they have it right, you do deserve nothing good. <laughs> None of us do. If we got what we deserve, we'd all be in hell. We know that. What they get wrong and what is anti-gospel is, the, is that the whole purpose of the gospel is for you to receive good from God. True humility, not their false humility, they masquerade as humble, but it's false humility and it's arrogance True humility recognizes that not only do we need good, but true humility puts pride on the shelf and says, I, my pride tells me I don't need help. I don't need God. I don't need good. That's what asceticism is essentially producing. I don't need good. I don't need good. I don't need good. God's offering me good, but I don't need it. 
because I want to live in humility. That's arrogance. That's arrogance and pride that says, I don't need good from God. When the gospel says, you need God, whom is good. And all the good things that come with it. You need that. So true humility, the real gospel, says, I need good from God. So true humility is not rejecting good. True humility is basking and absorbing and collecting and enjoying all the good things from God. God himself is good and God defines good. Good is only good because God is good. You realize that? Like, he doesn't just, like, goodness doesn't exist and then God fits his way into goodness. Goodness is what it is because God is who he is. And he is good and he defines what goodness is. So God is good. So to reject good from God is to reject God. Therefore, mysticism is heresy. And I, I will cover more on asceticism next week because verses 20 through 23, Paul really dives into this ascetic mindset. But the mystics here also worshipped angels, which scripture strictly forbids. This problem actually remained in Colossae for hundreds of years after this. So for, for the church, at least, you can tell that this is a rising problem because historically, when we look into about 250 years later, about 300 years later, the worship of angels is very prevalent in the area of Colossae. Not necessarily in the church, but in the area. We can find historical evidence even of angel, uh, worshiping angels in that general province where Colossae was, all the way up to the 8th century. And it's not far from us either. People today worship angels. They continue today to, to call on the saints or you know, the dead saints like St. Saint Christopher and St. Saint Paul and whoever, and, and they call on angels to fulfill something that Jesus alone fulfills. According to 1 Timothy 2.5, which says, There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus alone, not angels, not saints, Jesus alone mediates our relationship with God. And Jesus clearly teaches in Matthew 4.10 something very important. We think of Jesus being tempted by Satan. In that moment, do you think about the reality that Satan... I mean, we all know this. Satan is a, was created by God. Not as Satan, but as an angel. So Satan is still an angel. I'd call him an evil angel. But angel referring as definition, uh, using the word angel defined as a spiritual heavenly being. Heavenly meaning the heavenly realm, the spiritual realm. Not heaven as in the presence of God, where God's good angels and righteous angels exist, but Satan, who was a good angel, is now, we'll call him a demon, which would be an evil angel. So when Satan's tempting Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, what Satan is asking Jesus to do, we know it's idolatry to worship anything other than God, but what Satan's asking Jesus to do is angel worship. And the Son of God created him. Christ created him. And he's like, now worship me. And we're like, 
Satan is such an idiot. God himself worship you. He made you. Do you realize how close we are every moment to demanding that God worship us? We are not that far off. But by the grace of God, we don't. Because of the gospel, we don't. But we are millimeters away at some days. It's just, it's the natural state of our sinful nature to be worshipped. That was Satan's motivating drive to be above all. And that is the motivating sinful drive of our sinful nature, which still exists in you, but is thwarted and destroyed and killed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and by the blood of Christ. And when we are living in that sinfulness, that is us going back to our dead corpses, our spiritually dead corpses that are buried in the grave and we are yanking them back out and trying to live with them. So Satan tempts Jesus to worship Satan, which is angel worship. And what does Jesus say? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In Revelation 19.10, John falls down at the feet of an angel to worship him, and the angel said to John, You must not do that! I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Listen to this command. Worship God. That's, that's got to be the clearest, most concise, best summary of all the commands in the Bible. Worship God. So these mystics were inciting false worship, which is to steal God's glory and give it to another. That's idolatry. And the mystics would also boast in their visions, puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. They're kind of already talked about that. that it's arrogance, right? Notice how what we talked about in arrogance earlier is revealed here, to have visions is to have a puffed up or arrogant mind because you're puffed up because you have no reason. You're puffed up without reason. Without reason, without logic, without objective truth, without foundation, without intellect and understanding and the knowledge of God, your mind will become arrogant because all the things that you believe will come from you. Because you don't have foundational truth upon which it stands. And so all you're creating is your own theology. And as you create your own theology, you become arrogant in yourself because you think, I know so much, I experience so much, it's all about me. You don't intentionally set out for that, but that's the product. So their visions are self-produced, they're manufactured. And relying on visions for truth it's heretical. It's false teaching. It's a false gospel because Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says that God no longer speaks to us through these ways. But now he speaks to us through his son. John 1, 1 verses, John chapter 1 verses 1 and 14. The son is the word. So God communicates to us today through the word. And Paul makes it clear here because the kind of mind that relies on visions and voices for truth is not humble but puffed up. And arrogant and proud. It's arrogant and it's proud because to rely on sources other than the word of God is to think without reason or logic or truth or understanding or intellect and you become subject to any sensuous thought. As crazy as your mind can get, you can follow any heretical path if it's not founded on the truth of God's word. 
So they lack the intellect that is required to know God and relying on their mystical experiences. They, led, they were led astray by their faulty, errant, fallible, and sensuous minds, causing them to travel down paths of heresy and manipulation instead of truth, instead of holiness, instead of joy that God calls us to in him. Now I know that all kind of sounds crazy and you kind of think like that's the kind of mentality that, that like we're not going to see here, we would never go that route. But I hear, I hear this from so many Christians. Perspectives, thoughts, I, I call them self-proclaimed Christians because I think some of them might not be Christians. I don't know. It's not my place to necessarily know that. But my discernment of Scripture and the things I hear some people say and we go, Those, that doesn't line up with the truth of Scripture. So either they're not saved or they're saved and confused there's a lot of mystical things that happen very close to home. This is not far from us. People talking about God speaking to them audibly when he says he doesn't do that anymore or revealing words through various forms and ways, through different abuses of spiritual gifts, spewing out words that are not backed up biblically or not scripture or Jesus revealing himself in person to people. He doesn't do that anymore, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And, that they're, and then also this, feelings are the motivation. Feelings dictate our interpretation of our experiences. I have an experience, and with that experience, I have a feeling. That feeling was strong, that experience was real, so it must be true but scripture says it's not true, so I have to twist scripture to make my experience and feelings make sense. That's very easy for all of us to do. We are constantly on the precipice of falling into that pit every day. Because that's what our minds, we have experience and feelings. The Bible doesn't, doesn't, make this make, doesn't make sense to me biblically, but I experience and feel it. And the reason they can't connect the Bible to their experience and feelings is because they don't have the intellect, the knowledge, or the understanding because they haven't put in the time to know the word. So again, intellect drives right feelings. And like I said earlier, we're very aware that intellect itself can also become an idol, right? Where all of a sudden, feelings and experience mean nothing. All that matters is what you know. Well, that's, that's heresy the other way. That's an overcorrection. There is a biblical balance of intellect and knowledge guiding your emotions and experience so that you can enjoy God the way you're supposed to. Jesus was incredibly brilliant. Smartest man who ever lived. The Bible says he's the wisest man who ever lived, more so than Solomon. Very intellectual, knew scripture perfectly, knew how to use it, when to use it, what to say. His doctrine, out of this world. His sermons, beautiful logic and reason. And yet he cried. Yet he hurt. He had compassion on the crowds. He was the perfect balance of intellect and wisdom and knowledge and understanding balanced with emotion, feelings, and compassion, and love, and grace, and understanding, and an emotional, experiential sense. And he balanced those things 
perfectly. He knew when to wield which in what way at the right time. How? Because he had sound doctrine and a sound mind. And in a sound mind, he was filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit drove his intellect in whatever direction it needed to go, either toward information or emotion or a balance of both. We have that capability because we have the same Holy Spirit in us that was operating in Jesus Christ. We have the same Holy Spirit in us that can teach us the meaning of God's word to develop an intellect and understanding and knowledge of God that plants itself, downloads into our brains as just words on paper or information that we contain in our mind. It has no application yet, no practical outplaying yet, no emotional experience yet, no feelings to it yet, just information. We have the capability to sit down, read, study, and understand that information. And then we pray. And the Holy Spirit, we pray that God would help us download that information from here into our hearts to give us opportunities to experience these things, to play them out. You ever ask God for humility? What does he do? Does he go, sure, and you're instantly humble? No. What does he do? He humbles you, <laughs> right? You ever ask God for patience? Is he like, sure, here's patience? No. What does he do? He makes you wait. You ever ask God for wisdom? Does he instantly make you smart? No. He makes you do something wrong <laughs> so that you learn from that experience. You make a mistake and you learn. You gain wisdom through failure and many other ways. My point is God doesn't just make you download the information in your brain. He makes you experience life in a particular way so that you can apply the truths that are now in your head. And now knowledge has become experience and feeling. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Okay, downloaded. Got it. All right. Now what? I did a wedding yesterday, right? These people were the happiest couple I've ever seen in my life. They couldn't hold it together in front of me. They were crying, they were weeping, both the husband and the wife, so ecstatic, they were so happy, they were like wiping snot off their face, trying to read their vows, they could barely get through it. They were filled with joy. Should I be there weeping and crying? Should I be there all stoic and, I'm glad you're happy. <laughs> I'm standing there in front of these hundreds of people watching, and I'm like, I got this huge grin on my face. I'm like, oh, Mark, relax your face. You're smiling too much. It was just so, I, I couldn't contain myself. They were so happy. It made me happy. Holly and I watch a show on Netflix <laughs> called Love on the Spectrum. It's people with autism finding love. It is so hard to watch that show when these two people with like autism and mental disabilities fall in love with each other. It's the most adorable, wonderful thing you'll ever see. And I can't help it because last night I realized, like, I can't stop smiling because it's so fun to watch these people find something they've been looking for for so long. Why? Because I want to rejoice with those who rejoice. If someone comes to me and, they're, and, and they, they lost someone they love and they're broken and destroyed and crying, am I going to be like, let's celebrate? No, that would be totally inappropriate. We weep with them. So now I've taken information 
Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I've taken the information and God gives me opportunities to experience it and apply it in real life. And that is how right, right thinking drives right experiences, right feelings. is the problem I'm going to call out a faulty doctrine here this is the problem with charismatics not all charismatics are this way but often are they have faulty theology and sometimes a false gospel because they derive their truth from their feelings and their experiences, which they give more weight to than Scripture. And if their feelings and experiences don't connect with Scripture, they have to manipulate Scripture to make their feelings and experiences make sense. So mysticism is not far from us. It's in our communities. It's in our, it's in our own hearts. It's in our own minds. We're so close to being mystical ourselves if we are not tempered by a sound mind in Christ, if we aren't inundated with the Word of God, if we aren't learning and growing and downloading truth, intellectually exploring the knowledge of God. If you're, if you're struggling emotionally and experientially, the solution is not to fix your feelings. The solution is not to do better or create a different experience. The solution is to get your brain, your mind, your thoughts into the Word of God, understand Him more, and through that understanding, He will give you opportunities for application so that He starts correcting the way you think and the way you experience life. It's already in your mind, ready to manipulate you. But 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us this. This is who we are in Christ. This is what we are capable of doing in Christ. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. What's a lofty opinion? What Paul's just talking about in Colossians 2 from our text today. A lofty opinion. That What, what is wrong with these mystics? Puffed up with their sensuous minds. It's arrogance. These are arrogant opinions. We destroy arguments and arrogant opinions, puffed up visions and sensuous minds. We, we, we destroy them when they are raised against the knowledge of God. So what do we use to destroy arrogant, puffed up ideas, thoughts of experiences and feelings? What does he say in 2 Corinthians 10.5? What do we use? The knowledge of God. We use our intellect to reject faulty feelings and experiences and false doctrines and puffed up minds and sensuous minds and arrogance. We use the knowledge of God. We use our intellect to reject these things. And what do we do? We take every thought, not feeling, not experience, thought. We take every thought captive to obey Christ because obedience starts in the mind. Starts with the way that you think. And what we want is spirit-controlled thinking. Spirit-controlled thinking is what the Bible calls self-control. Which is always biblical. So, 
What is the solution for us to avoid that kind of mysticism in our life? We wouldn't call it mysticism. We just call it sin. But it is essentially mysticism. What do we do? Paul answers in verse 19. Now what verse 19 is is two things. Number one, it is an indictment against the mystics. And it is also instruction for the church. So he's going to tell you what the mystics are doing wrong and why. And it's also the solution or the answer for the church. So he says in verse 19 what the mystics are not doing. They're not holding fast to the head, that's Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Genuine and real spiritual growth comes from being united to Christ. And we are united together with each other to Christ. And that is how God grows the body. Unity in Christ. And this is the problem with the mystics. Their source is not Christ. There's no union with Christ. Their source is themselves, which is faulty and sinful, and it produces false and sinful thinking and living. But Paul tells us that our source should be the head, which is Jesus. Whom is Jesus? And Paul told us about this back in chapter 1, verse 18. He said, he, referring to Jesus, He is the head of the body, the church. Now the word head here refers specifically to Jesus. Our interpretation of the word head is a reference to Jesus. But the idea, the the position or the role of Jesus as head carries multiple meanings. I'll give you two of them. One meaning of Jesus being the head means that he is the mind. The mind of the body. We are the body, he is the head, he's the mind. His will rules. The mind determines what your body does. Only from your brain can your limbs move according to your will. So it is with Christ that we operate according to His will. So to operate according to His will, we must know His mind and know His will, and we learn His mind and His will from His word, which is an intellectual endeavor. Now, that doesn't mean you can't pursue the Word of God for feelings. It doesn't mean you can't pursue the Word of God or dive into the Word of God for experiences. Of course you can. But right, those right, if you want right feelings as you explore the Word, right experiences, it starts with the right thinking. So we have to be in the Word. To know the mind of Christ and to know the will of God and to do it. The second meaning to Jesus' headship is leadership and authority. The body can't do anything without the mind because the the body naturally submits to the mind. Every action my hands make right now, every word that comes out of my mouth, every movement my body makes, every feeling I'm feeling inside is a product of my mind creating and causing all of these different functions to operate at the same time. The body can't do anything without the mind because The body naturally submits to the mind. And so it is with the church. That we are to be fully submissive to Christ, so much so that we only do that which glorifies God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, that encapsulates all of your reality. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, anything and everything, Do it all for the glory of God. Now in John 12, 49, Jesus talks about this. He says, 
For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me, as he himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. The Father gives Jesus the Son specific and direct commandments and clarity about what he should and should not do and say. And then in John 14, 31, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me. So Jesus sets the example of submission to God's authority, and God sets Jesus as the husband and the authority to the church, the head of the body. That's us, the body. And God makes Christ the authority, and we are to submit to that authority. When we do that, we're united together in Christ, and Christ the head operates the body for a particular purpose, which Paul tells us in verse 19 is this, to be nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and grows with the growth that is from God. Spiritual growth requires union with Jesus. Spiritual growth requires union with Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 4 through 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Meaning, you cannot bear good fruit unless you are abiding in Christ. We are tempted in our sinful nature to move away from the objective truth that Jesus just told us and move into subjective experiences and feelings and thoughts. And when we do that, we're trusting in ourselves. We're tempted to move away from Christ, to move away from the church, to try this on our own, to try it with feelings, to try it with experiences, to try anything to make life better, to deal with our anxiety, try anything to you know, go on social media and find little tips and hacks on how to deal with anxiety and depression. It's not going to solve your problem. It's a product of a sinful heart. Anxiety is sin. Depression is sin. I'm not suggesting that those who have anxiety and depression are waking up every morning like, I'm going to sin today. I want to be anxious and depressed. It's, it's, of course not. It's a product of unbiblical, untrue thinking that has crept into your mind and into your heart and has twisted your perception of yourself and of God and of reality and it is hurting you. And there is a real, physical, biological, chemical response that has taken place in your brain that is producing those feelings every day. And the only way to fix that anxiety, fix that depression, and fix those experiences and fix those wrong feelings is to change the way you think to realign the biological construct of your brain. It is physiology. You think God is disconnected from physiology? You think God's all over here like, oh, I'm just faith and, you know, you know that's all. It's just faith. There's no biology involved. Science and God don't blend. Are you kidding me? Your faith is a biological response. Amen. 
It is an emotional experience. It is real. There are real neurons firing in your brain as you think about the way that reality is. And anxiety and depression is a repeat of thinking that has gone down the wrong path. And with every day, as those thoughts repeated, you got one step further and further and further away from truth and are now stuck biologically, chemically, and emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, and physically stuck on a path that is far from truth. And the only way to get back is to get in the Word of God. Period. You have to change the way you think. I'm not going to make, I'm not going to talk about drugs. If, if, if drugs have a, a, you know, taking certain medication is, is good for anxiety, depression, and, and that path back to truth. But if you're taking medication and you're not in the Word of God, that's a band-aid. It's not going to fix the problem. If you're counting on social media to solve your problems, it's not going to work. If you're counting on it to just go away one day, not going to work. The answer is in the Word of God. To change the way you think. And it will take time. And it will be hard. And it will take hard work. It'll take dedication to daily. You, you think that people with anxiety, this is why people who struggle with anxiety and they hear other people tell them things like, oh, just feel, just stop feeling that way. Just, just be happy. The people with anxiety are like, are you kidding me? That's the most insensitive, non-understanding thing you could tell somebody with anxiety or depression. They, 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 don't, they would say, I don't choose to feel this way. But the reality is, you did. You chose it over a series of little choices day by day that led this way. And you're not a bad person for it. It's just part of our sinful nature. And we all go different paths. Some, some of us think it's anxiety. Some of us it's constant nervousness. Some of us it's depression. Some of us it's other emotional disorders and other unbiblical thoughts and other unbiblical practices. We all experience it in our own way. The only way to get back is the day after day after day after day, be in the Word, be in the Word, be in the Word. Start changing the way you think. And as God starts to change the way you think by the power of His Holy Spirit, who will work through His Word, that is a promise from God. He will work through His Word. Open the Bible, read it, study it. It works, I promise, it works. It'll always work. It will fix you. It will fix you. It may take time. I can't promise you how long it takes. It could take a week. It could take five years. I don't know. But it works because it says that it works. Isaiah 55, 11, For the word of God will accomplish that which God has sent it to do. It will not return to him void. If you open it, it will work. Psalm 37, 5, I think, says... What does it say? <laughs> I just want to get the first word. I always, I always forget the first word. Um, commit. commit. <laughs> I always want to say obey, but the word is commit. It means obey. Commit your way to the Lord. That means obey. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. You've heard me say that a hundred times from this pulpit. Obey him. And trust his word. Watch him work. That's a promise. He will act. That's a promise. He will act. Open 
your Bible. Get into it. If you have problems in life, open your Bible. Read it. It will solve your problems. And day after day after day, the Word of God will steadily and slowly start fixing the way you think. And as it fixes the way you think, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, He will start putting you in scenarios and situations where that conviction rises up. You go, this is a moment where I get to do something different than what I've always done. This is a habit-breaking moment. And you should have lots of them in your life if you're in the Word of God, because the Word of God will convict you of your sin, will show you the ways in which you aren't thinking right and that you are wrong, because all of us are going to have a lot of wrong thinking until you die. We're not perfect. There's a lot to fix in all of us. And so we got to get in the Word and let the Holy Spirit start teaching us and convicting us. And as He convicts us, and we live our lives day after day, that conviction is going to rise up to the surface in these moments in life where we're like, now's the moment that I make a decision that's different than the decision I've always been making. This is a habit-breaking moment. And after series of habit-breaking moments, day after day and week after week and months after months and years after years, you become a different person. You become like Christ. And through that process, anxiety fades, and depression fades, and faulty thinking fades, and unhealthy feelings fade. And all of a sudden we start thinking clearly, and biblically, and correctly, and rightly, and righteously, and wholly, and we start living that way. And our lives begin to more and more reflect what? Holiness? Yeah. Righteousness? Yeah. But what would be the difference? What's going to be the difference in the person with anxiety? What's going to be the difference in the person with depression? What is going to be the signifying marker that tells me that person is in the Word of God? What is it? Do you know? It's joy. It's happiness. It's joy. We ought to be the happiest people in the world. I can tell. I mean, think about it. When you see someone who's just super unhappy, you're like, what is wrong? You're like, are you okay? What's wrong? We don't go, hey, I can tell you're in the Word. You look really humble right now. We don't say that to people who look depressed. I'm sorry, was I pointing at you, Jim? I'm <laughs> guilty. <laughs> I pointed over here and he looked at his wife like, what did I do? <laughs> sorry. That was a vague point. I was pointing at Brian, actually. So, I'm kidding. So, the, the, the identifying marker of, of being in the Word and, and day by day having habit-breaking moments that are built by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that comes from your intellectual knowledge gained by being in the Word starts to affect the way you feel and think and experience life and it will produce joy. Joy is the whole reason you exist. Joy is the entire purpose of your existence. That is it. Now there's more to it obviously, so that's really not it, but I say that's it because if that's the thing you're after, joy, you're on the right track. Now if you're trying to find joy in sports, not going to happen. Wrong track. Try to find joy in your marriage, wrong track. Joy in your family, joy in your church, no. Those things are not going to produce the joy you need. The joy you need comes from the Word of God 
And as we obey and glorify God and grow spiritually in Christ and learn more, the more satisfying God becomes to you. The more you enjoy God, the more God is glorified in you. Think about this reality in your own life. How, much, how good does it feel as a parent when your child depends on you? When they're young. What is, what's the difference when a child says, Mom or Dad, I need you. And you get to provide for your child. And they look at you and they go, thank you. I appreciate you so much. I love you, mom and dad. Hugs and kisses. Mm, you're like, oh, it feels so good. Right? Like it's the best feeling. Like your kids just really appreciate you and depend on you. And then they show you that appreciation. They show you the joy they have in what you've done for them. And it is the best feeling as a parent. That feels very different from mom and dad, I need your help. And you help and they go, and walk away. That's not appreciation. That's not joy. Do I feel great about their, their attitude? No. God's the same way with us. He wants you to enjoy him, appreciate him, depend on him, rely on him, trust him, live for him, obey him, pursue him, desire him, read about him, learn about him, know about him. Practice those things so you can get closer to him. He wants you to experience him. He's a relational God. We're talking about intellect. Intellect has a higher purpose than knowledge. The higher purpose than knowledge with intellect from the Bible is to experience and know and enjoy God. And when you do enjoy God, at your most, the more you enjoy God, the more he's glorified in you. So we ought to be marked by joy. It comes from right thinking, and right thinking comes from being in the Word. Let's pray. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your sacrifice. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your grace that has brought us to this place, to this point where we can know that there's more to be had intellectually from your Word. And I pray that you would cause us to know your Word. Lead us to your Word. Help us to destroy Lofty opinions. Help us to destroy lofty, arrogant arguments. Help us to destroy thoughts of depression. To take them captive to obey Christ by being in your word. Taking thoughts of anxiety. Taking thoughts that are unhealthy and untrue. And start thinking truthfully, honestly, in the knowledge of your word. Thinking biblically. Cause us to get into your word. Make a difference. Give us those habit-breaking moments and change our lives so that we would be people filled with joy in you. For your glory, Father, and for the exaltation of Jesus Christ, we pray this in his name. Amen.